Hey, if you're new, welcome to Citadel Square. We are so excited you chose this morning to join us. You came on a great Sunday. We are right in the middle of our study of the book of Revelation. I'm looking at the seven churches that Jesus writes uh, to the seven churches of John's day. Uh, we're five, let's see, what, we're, on, oh, we're on church number six. So you guys have done great. You've made it through uh, five and a half uh, letters to these churches. I pray they've been an encouragement to you. Uh, they've been uh, a challenge to me to look at and to uh, really filter through my own soul and my own mind, mind and heart. As I try to do every week, I ask God, God, what do you want me to learn from this text? What are the things that you're impressing upon me that I might conform my life more in line with your word and what your desires is at that time. So today we're going to look at the church at Philadelphia. So I want you to do two things as we begin because we've got to do a little bit of work in the Old Testament as well. I want you to find Isaiah chapter 22, one of the big major prophets in the middle of your Bible. Find Isaiah. If you just sort of flop your Bible open, you probably get pretty close. I did that. I'm in Jeremiah. I got to go one book to the left. Uh, or if you land in the Psalms, just flip a few, just a few pages forward, and you'll find Isaiah chapter 22. And then find the main text we'll be in here today in the book of Revelation. Turn to Revelation chapter 3. So you have both of those. <clears throat> you good? Finding your way? Revelation chapter 3. Well, last week we looked at a church named Sardis. And Sardis was a church that had no commendation from Jesus whatsoever. Now, there's only two of those that get uh, no commendation from Christ whatsoever. And there's two churches that get no critique whatsoever. The first one was the church at Smyrna. Uh, And the the next one is this church that we're going to look at today, the church at Philadelphia. Um, You would think, because Philadelphia means city of brotherly love, that this was a really, really great church. But this is a a church that faces extreme amounts of persecution. Uh, It's named Philadelphia because of the uh, brother lover is what that means, and it's, it's because of two brothers who were uh, leaders and generals at the time who really uh, came together and banded together in Rome. Uh, so that's why they called this city Philadelphia. Uh, the church of Philadelphia, as I said, gets no critique whatsoever. You're going to see a little bit of a mirror image between Smyrna, which was church number two, and Philadelphia, church number six. You're going to see similar themes that show up. You're going to see both churches experience times of persecution. Uh, both churches receive an encouragement from Jesus Christ to hold fast or, fast or stay faithful in their day where they are. They both have identical opposition. The antagonists of the church at Smyrna are the same antagonists of the church at Philadelphia. Uh, and these churches, uh, specifically Philadelphia, this text today is going to be one that is probably the most theologically minded letter that we've seen thus far. Uh, the letters have been very particular because they've been dealing with very particular struggles in certain cities. And we've seen a variety of persecution and difficulty. We've seen, per- we've seen difficulty within the churches, the church's own individual spiritual life, that as they have tried to figure out how to face temptation that shows up in the form of false teaching, You've had different kinds of economic and political pressure that show up in the life and times of the church, and then consistently Christ has provided this command or this promise to those who conquer the particular struggle of the church there. Well, today the church at Philadelphia is going to face religious persecution, just like the church at Smyrna did. 
And the command uh, to Smyrna, if you remember, was Jesus saying, uh, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Well, you're going to see the crown mentioned here in this text as well. And in the context of Christianity or the Christian church globally speaking, when the church of Jesus Christ goes through persecution, often the command that comes from Jesus is for perseverance. We've seen that consistently throughout these letters, that there's a a sense of bearing up under the persecution that comes. Uh, But perseverance alone isn't enough for the Christian when the Christian goes through times of persecution. If that's all you have in times of religious, uh, economic, political persecution, the command is essentially for you to be strong. And for those of us who feel that life at times is not fair, and we experience the consequences for holding to the name of Jesus in particularly difficult places, both locally, uh, nationally, and globally speaking, that you need more than the command to perseverance. What you need and I need and what every Christian needs, no matter what place they are on this planet, are the promises of Jesus Christ. So you have persecution that comes, a command to persevere, but what you're going to see today uh, in this letter to the, the church at Philadelphia, this church is going to get the most number of promises of any church that we've seen thus far. You're going to have six, maybe seven promises, depending on how you count them. But what it does for the Christian who will face persecution is put their eyes not on where they are horizontally, but where they are vertically and what Jesus has done for us to secure our future, our redemption, our hope, our security, our intimacy, our saving from the wrath of God. So you're going to have a variety of promises that come to bolster and build up this church to give it strength in a difficult time and in a difficult place and in a difficult city. You with me? So you may feel like right now, Steve, I'm not going through persecution per se right now. I may have circumstantial difficulty. I may have vocational difficulty. I may have economic difficulty, but I'm not experiencing persecution particularly for my faith right now today. Well, this is one of those letters that every Christian needs because there's coming a time when there will be persecution, difficulty, and hardship Paul says after he's stoned and he, wa- he comes out of the city of Lystra, he's stoned, he gets up and he says, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So that for Paul, he recognized that you and I are swimming against the stream. That when you lay hold of the truth of Jesus Christ and who he is, you put yourself in opposition to this world, to your sinful flesh, and to the spiritual forces of darkness. So that in many ways, for a church that still has the freedom of religion and the freedom to gather and the freedom to enjoy worship with our brothers and sisters in Christ, these promises are as true for you now when you're not going through persecution as they will be on the day when you experience persecution for holding to the name of Jesus. So these are, these are like, this is like taking your vitamins. You with me? This is the strengthening power of the truth of Jesus Christ's word to make sure his his, uh, word is true and his church stands firm in a difficult day. So these are your push-ups. You with me? Your vitamins. Do I need another illustration? You with me? You understand what this is? Be prepared. These promises are really, really good. So let's pray and ask God for his grace to teach us what we need to hear this morning. Father in heaven, 
We pray this morning for the church that is persecuted in places that are not where we are right now. For your sons and daughters who maybe this morning gather in fear, who gather in trepidation and uncertainty about whether or not their church will be raided and their lives will be upended and they will lose the place they have and the jobs that they have because of holding to the truth of your word. We pray for the persecuted church worldwide that needs to hear the truth of the words that you give to the Philadelphian church. We pray for those brothers and sisters throughout the globe who may experience loss of life today even for losing and losing their life because of holding to the truth of your word. Would you encourage us here this morning? Would you strengthen us that if the day comes where we need to hold fast to your name in a wicked day and experience economic persecution, political persecution, religious persecution for what we hold, may we be found faithful to your name. So Father, give us grace here this morning. Shape us, strengthen us, empower us, bolster our faith. May we live lives that honor you. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. This church begins, uh, we've had pretty, if you remember from Revelation chapter 1, we've had these, um, these descriptions of Jesus Christ that have begun each of the letters, right? We've had the, uh, the declaration of the one who has the eyes like the flame of fire, the one who has the sword that comes from his mouth, the one who walks among the lampstands. Well, here in Philadelphia, you get your very first mention, your very first description of Jesus Christ that doesn't come fundamentally rooted in Revelation chapter 1. John gets to play jazz a little bit, and he pulls an idea from your Old Testament that's in the book of Isaiah that I'll get to in just a second. Uh, but this is going to be instructive for us in the way that we properly interpret Revelation chapter 3. The, this letter lays out with kind of two major interpretations in the way that we understand what this church is going through. And I think it has a near fulfillment in what is going to be true for the church of Philadelphia in their day. And it's going to have a future fulfillment as we, 2,000 years later from when John writes, experience and understand what God has to say to his church. So it's particular in that it writes to a local church, but it also has universal church applications. You with me? So there are truths here that are scriptural ideas and biblical themes that are going to be built into the letter of Philadelphia. So watch how John begins writing the letter to the Philadelphian church. To the church... I'm sorry, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write this, the words of the Holy One. Now, that's not a, a throwaway term for Jesus Christ. God calls himself the Holy One in the book of, uh, I'm sorry, book of Hosea. Uh, and when Jesus begins his public ministry, uh, specifically in the book of Mark, Mark is the, the gospel of action. Jesus is always moving. Everything throughout the book of Mark is immediately. Immediately this happens. Immediately this happens. Immediately this happens. Well, one of the very first things that happens in the book of Mark, uh, Jesus gets baptized. He gets tempted. He chooses the disciples. And the very next thing that Jesus does is he goes to church. And he shows up in the synagogue. And when he's in the synagogue teaching, there's a demon that's in an individual. And the demon cries out, Jesus, I know who you are the Holy One of God. What's that tell you? It tells you the demons go to church. 
Side point, that's for free this morning. But the demons recognize that that is who Jesus is. Later on, when Jesus is teaching his difficult teaching in John chapter 6, he talks about eating his, uh, eating his flesh and drinking his blood, and everybody gets really weirded out. And it says, from that time forward, the disciples, many of his disciples, no turn back and no longer followed him. And then Jesus turns to his closest disciples and he said, what are you going to do? Are you going to leave too? And Peter says, where else are we going to go? You alone have the words of life, and we have come to believe that you are the Holy One of God. That's in John chapter 6. So the demons recognize Jesus for who he is. They recognize his deity, and his disciples begin to recognize who Jesus is and attribute to him deity. So you have the Holy One now speaking to this church, the one um, that shares his deity with God the Father. Not only is he the holy one, look at what else he is. You see what the next one is? He's the true one. Now, the true one is an interesting phrase. All throughout Jesus' ministry, we're being confronted with the truth of who Jesus is, aren't we? That the Jews had a real problem with Jesus calling God his father. Because it it says uh, in the book of John that he made himself to be equal with God by calling God his father. In fact, John begins his gospel in a very different way than a lot of the other Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John gospels. Remember how John begins his gospel? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, right? Then he goes on and he says... um, You can read it. Essentially, all, all things were made through him, right? And nothing was made that has been made except what he has made, which means what? What's it tell you about Jesus? That Jesus was not only with God, but that Jesus defines physical reality. You know, one of the definitions of truth, if you look it up in your Merriam-Webster Webster dictionary, if it hasn't been changed at this point, is that is truth is that which corresponds with reality. So that when Jesus speaks, essentially it says Jesus is the genuine one. He's the true one. He's the one that you can always trust, who will never lead you astray. He will never deceive you. He always speaks what is true. So he's always accurate. Revelation 1 begins and calls him the faithful witness. Now that's going to be important that Jesus begins. I'll show you that in a minute. But he begins with saying he's the true one. Remember the Ray Charles commercial, Pepsi? The right one, baby. Is that what it was? Is that right? You drink Pepsi. AJ can't remember. You can look that up later on YouTube. He's the true one, but there's one more. Now, here's our third one. Jesus already said that he's had some keys. He has the keys of death and Hades. He's got another key here. Now, let's turn and look at Isaiah chapter 22 that describes what the key of David is. It mentioned, it's mentioned it's an Old Testament idea. Turn back to Isaiah chapter 22, and we're going to start in verse 15. You should be already there. You ready? Uh, This isn't on the screen. This is for free. You're going to have to do that extra hard work of flipping your, or scrolling, or tapping. You can do it, I promise. Isaiah 22, starting in verse 15. Thus says the Lord God of hosts, come and go to this steward, to Shebna, who is over the household, and say to him, what have you to do here, and whom have you here, that you have cut out here a tomb for yourself? Tombs in the Old Testament... Uh, were not individual things. In our culture, they're individual things. You typically don't get buried uh, with other folks in our culture, right? 
you have a tombstone that declares where you are. That wasn't what happened here. You would have family tombs. So for an individual to carve out his own tomb to be where he alone was buried was a very, um, uh, not arrogant, it was an arrogant and wealthy thing. It said something special about who he is, that I really need a monument to my name. Who cut out a tomb on the height and, the, and carve out a dwelling for yourself in the rock. Verse 17, behold, the Lord will hurl you away violently, O you strong man. He will seize firm hold on you and whirl you around and around and throw you like a ball into a wild land, a wide land. There you shall die and there shall be your glorious chariots, you shame of your master's house. Not a good thing to have on your tombstone right? Jesus says this individual will not be honored. He'll be cast out from his very own land. Verse 19, I'll thrust you from your office and you will be pulled down from your station. In that day, I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe and I will bind your sash on him and I will commit your, now this is important. There's two things that keys do. Keys grant authority and they grant access. Here's your first one. And will commit your authority to his hand, and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. A steward isn't the king. A steward allows access to the king. He essentially grants access or bars access into the presence of the king, into the courts of the king. So that he stands essentially as the king's guard. Nobody comes in, nobody comes out except through this guy. Now this previous guy, Shebna, did a, did a terrible job. He made his position all about himself. And God says, You're gonna be, your position is going to be evacuated. I'm going to take your authority and access and the key that you have, and I'm going to hand it to this guy, to Eliakim. I'll place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. He shall shut and none shall open. There's your access idea. No one in, no one out. When I open it, you can come in. When I close it, nobody comes in. And I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place, and he will become a throne of honor to his father's house. So you get the idea? Eliakim has the authority to grant and to bar access into the presence of the king. Now, why does Jesus have the key of David. Eliakim, eventually, in the next couple of verses, he fails. That the hopes of the nation will rest upon him, and he said, like a tent peg, he will fall apart, that he will eventually not be strong enough to support that position. Until you get to Revelation chapter 3, okay? Go back to Revelation chapter 3. So there's the Holy One and the True One. Jesus Christ, who has the key of David. Now, to have the key of David means that he has access to grant authority and access. He has the sovereignty to grant authority and access into the messianic kingdom. Does that sound familiar? Has Jesus said stuff like that before in the book of John? I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. Okay? So you've got a singular access into the courts and the presence of God through this individual, Jesus Christ. He's the fulfillment of what Eliakim was in part. Okay? There's your idea. Now, let's look at 3 verse 8. Let's take a look at this church. 
I know your works. Now, that may make you nervous if you were with us last week. Remember how Jesus breezed by the works of the church at Sardis and said, you had a reputation, you had a name, but you're, you really sound like you're alive, but you're dead. Well, this is going to be a different kind of conversation with the church at Philadelphia, a church that is suffering. I know your works. Behold, I've set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. Now, there's two possible interpretations of this doorway idea. In the New Testament, the open door virtually always refers to opportunity for missionary and evangelistic fruit. Paul refers to this all the time in his ministry travels. He talks about a wide door being opened for effective fruit. In Colossians 4, he says, pray for us that a door may be opened for us and we may have opportunity. Uh, He says in 2 Corinthians that a door, uh, even though a door was opened to me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I didn't find my brother Titus there. So Paul, when he is on his missionary journeys, he's always looking for these opportunities to allow the gospel to move his steps forward, to look for evangelistic opportunity and fruit. And he calls those things open doors. Now, it may be this church that is, as they are experiencing uh, persecution, that they may actually have more opportunity for gospel advancement than uh, it seems to be aware. He's going to call them a church with a little bit of power in just a second. Which might connect with things like Paul says. Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, when he writes the Philippian church, he said, I want you to know that what has happened to me has really turned out to advance the gospel. Well, Paul, what do you mean? You're in prison. You can't be preaching. And he says, some preach uh, Christ from envy and rivalry. Other preach from good motives. And I don't care because Christ is preaching and that I rejoice. That for Paul, persecution was never devoid of opportunity. He goes on to say in Philippians, he says, the whole imperial guard know that the reason I'm here is for the cause of Jesus Christ. You chain Paul up, what's he do? He starts sharing Christ with the guards. He starts sharing Christ with the prisoners. He starts sharing the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He starts writing letters to churches that you can't stop this guy. He goes on to say that the word of God is not bound, that there's no persecution, there's no opposition to the plan and purpose of God, that God cannot continue to work evangelistic, eternal fruit through. You with me? Is that good news? Boy, I, don't, we, don't uh, we face opposition and have a tendency to face opposition and experience it as a personal attack? And we go, God, I mean, come on, my plans for Jesus got derailed. And this has been such an encouragement to me in ministries that when my plans don't go the way I think they ought to go according to God's plans, a lot of time what those moments are are invitations for me to reset and reflect and to push into intimacy with Jesus Christ to go, God, what are you doing in this moment that is different than what I thought you would do? So it may be that this church is experiencing an open door for opportunity, an open door for evangelistic fruit even though they have a little bit of power, even though they're not that strong. Look at what he says to go on in the remainder of the verse. I know you have a little bit of power. That Jesus doesn't need big churches to do great things. He doesn't need popular churches to do great things. Did the church last week have an issue with popularity in the eyes of the culture? That they had a great reputation, but they were dead. This church facing persecution has a little bit of power, yet they've, hold, they've held on to the thing that makes them distinct in their day and time, where Sardis had lost their distinction in the culture. 
There was nothing that made them unique. This church, they've kept my word, and they haven't denied my name. That's pretty good, huh? That's a pretty good commendation from Jesus Christ. That we don't have to be big, we don't have to be popular, but we gotta be faithful. We've gotta hold to the truth. You gotta keep his word. And that meant obedience, right? That's what we've seen thus far in these letters of the churches. That meant obeying the truth of Jesus' uh, biblical revelation of who he is, making that the rudder of our life. Now, verse 9. Here's a weird one. You with me? You tracking? This is a weird one. Look at verse 9. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Now, isn't it important that we have somebody who's able to interpret Somebody who has eyes like a flame of fire. Somebody who is the true one, who is able to determine those who are true and those who are not. Those who speak the truth and those who speak lies. Is that good news? Say yes. You're with me. Okay, good. Praise the Lord. You're with me. Okay. I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold. I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. It's the only, it's only, you know, we read this morning from Revelation chapter 1, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. It's only the second mention of Jesus Christ's love in this book. And here, it may be that with this open door, if we're tracking with this idea of open door and opportunity for evangelistic fruit and ministry continuing to go forth, even when we are persecuted, even when we are opposed and oppressed, that God will reverse the persecution that is coming against you and create converts out of it. Now, has God done that in the Bible? Was there a certain Jew who really, really hated Christians and approved the stoning of Stephen, who God met on the road to Damascus and he became the single greatest evangelist for the truth of Jesus Christ? Who are we talking about? Paul. Can God do that? Can God turn a guy's life on a dime to take him from persecutor to missionary? Absolutely. So it may be locally that this persecution that they're experiencing from this synagogue of Satan, this synagogue of Jews who are coming against them, it may may be that God is taking that persecution and reversing it and turning it into blessing, turning it into ministerial evangelistic opportunity. So here's the idea. We begin with this idea of Jesus who has the keys, who opens the kingdom, opens the door that no one can shut, and shuts doors that no one can open. And this church still has opportunity. But there's another way that we can understand this open door idea. And it's here in this, in this little bitty phrase, the synagogue of Satan. Now, now keep with me here. John, when he writes about synagogues in his gospel, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Revelation, only uses the term synagogue seven times. Five of the seven times when John talks about synagogues, they're always in the context of religious persecution. Isn't that interesting? Why in the world, one, would John mention that so a uh, few times, and two, why is it always in the context of persecution? In John chapter 9, there's this story about a man who was born blind, right? 
And the man who's born blind comes to Jesus. Jesus comes to him. And the guy says, I, uh, I've been blind since birth. His disciples say, well, who sinned, this guy or his parents? Jesus says, nobody. It's, uh, he's blind so the works of God may be displayed in him. So Jesus heals him. And the man picks up his mat and starts walking around. And the Jews go, hey, uh, wait a minute. We don't do that. We don't hold mats on the Sabbath. You're sinning. And the ex-blind guy says, the guy who healed me told me to pick up my mat and go home. And everybody gets real mad at the guy. And they start interviewing him. And they go, well, who is it that healed you? He said, I don't know. What would you say about him? Well, I'm pretty sure he's a prophet. And then they go and they interview his parents. And they have this conversation with his parents. And his parents get real, real nervous. Because the Jews say, this is in John chapter 9, you can read it, the Jews say, that anybody who confesses Jesus is the Christ will be put out of the synagogue. What does that mean? That means that for the Jews, if they align themselves with Jesus Christ, they lose their social and religious and communal aspect of who they are. They're put out of the synagogue. Now, When you get to the book of Revelation and John mentions the synagogue of Satan, we now have this sense that the Jews in John's time have now turned on the New Testament church. Let me go back even bigger in the Bible. God's covenant people in the Old Testament are the Jews. The Jews typically experience opposition and conflict at the hands of the Gentiles. Major, major kingdoms come and the Jews have to live through the oppression of these Gentile kingdoms, Egypt, Um, Assyria, Babylon, Greek, Roman empires. You with me? Jews under persecution from Gentiles. Then you get to the New Testament, and the New Testament has these letters that go out to all of these different places that aren't Jewish places. Galatia, Ephesus, Thessalonica, Colossae, Rome, and on and on and on. You with me? Who begins to persecute the New Testament church in Acts? It's not the Gentiles. It's the Jews. Now, if you in your Bible, you tracking with me? These are, these are big, big themes. Old Testament, Jews oppressed by Gentiles. New Testament, Jews oppress the, uh, the Gentile, predominantly Gentile church. Now, if you in your Bible have a cross-reference, you should have about three different cross-references in the book of Isaiah which are promises to the Jewish people, the Gentiles will come and bow down before them, acknowledging that they are the people of God. This verse shows you that there's been some key reversal in the themes throughout the scriptures that await Old Testament biblical fulfillment that happens, you guessed it, in the book of Revelation. But at this point, up to this point, the people of God in the New Testament church? Is there something that happened in the Gospels that caused the Jews to hate Jesus, the Messiah, the true one, the holy one of God? That he made himself to be the son of God, the father. They rejected him. They kill him. He he is risen from the dead. And now the preaching of the gospel leaves the Jewish lands, and this is the whole book of Acts, and it goes to the Gentiles. So that now, what's the issue for the church? The issue for the church is whether or not they believe that Jesus Christ is who he says he is. The issue for every single church is whether or not they believe Jesus Christ is who he says he is. 
And Jesus says here that I will make those who are the synagogue of Satan. How does Jesus have the authority to declare that the Jewish people are now a synagogue of Satan? Because they have rejected his son. Is God done with the Jews? No, that's the rest of the book of Revelation. Come back in the spring and we'll see how God is faithful to his promises to the Jews. Read Romans 9 through 11 and watch how God will reverse this again to fulfill all the promises he made to the Jews in the Old Testament in the book of Revelation. All right, let's come up for air. There's a lot there, isn't there? Major, major biblical themes. Here's what you need to know. It matters what you think of Jesus. It matters where you stand with Jesus. Have you noticed the pressure that the churches have experienced up to this point in Revelation? They've experienced religious persecution at the hands of the synagogues of Satan. They've experienced economic pressure. They've experienced spiritual temptation at the hands of false teachers. They've experienced political pressure. Where the kingdoms, now this is what you're going to see. These themes are all through Revelation. You're going to see people who are dealing with the, the deeds that they love to do where they will not repent. You're going to see in the book of Revelation, false religious systems come against the true people of God. In the book of Revelation, you're going to see false political systems come against the people of God. And the promises here in this book, in this letter, are going to be incredibly important for how you understand the remainder of the book of Revelation. Now, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Look at verse 10. Because you've kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. You ready for another super deep dive? You're learning a lot today. There's a lot in this letter. <clears throat> Every time the word, now we've talked about patient endurance through the course of this message, or the course of these letters, right? You remember patient endurance has been a constant theme throughout all of these letters. In fact, the theme of patient endurance happens throughout the New Testament, and it always pertains to the people of God. Always. 100% of the time, patient endurance is used to describe or command faithfulness of God's people. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. There's your first hint in this book, in the whole book of Revelation, of the idea called the rapture. What is the rapture? The rapture is mentioned at least three times, maybe four, including this one in the course of the New Testament. It has to do fundamentally with how you understand the wrath of God. If we believe that Jesus Christ is the propitiation for our sins, that he is the wrath bearer, then you and I as believers in Jesus Christ will never experience the wrath of God falling upon us because it fell on Jesus. Amen? That our sins have been handled by Jesus on the cross. Now, in the book of Revelation, the word repent is mentioned seven different times. Four times they're mentioned to the churches, which are commanded to repent. Three times they're mentioned according to this idea, with, and they refer to the people who dwell on the earth. The people who dwell on the earth are always, 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 throughout the book of Revelation, those who do not confess that Jesus is the Son of God. And consistently throughout the book of Revelation, they will not repent, which means you have a division, sheep and goats. You have people who believe that Jesus is the Son of God. They have taken their sins to Jesus. They have put their faith in Jesus Christ and what he has done for them on the cross. The wrath of God falls upon Jesus 
as a result of our sin, and we get brought in and free access into the very presence of God because of what Jesus has done for us. And then you have the hour of trial, which is the testing, which are the, the seals, the trumpets, the bowls that happen throughout the course of Revelation that come to test those who are on the earth, to force them into repentance. And God says for this church, this is really, this is Paul's writings to First and Second Thessalonians. The books written to First and Second Thessalonians, for those two letters are written to people who think they've missed the day of the Lord. They go, what happened? Suffering's bad. It's getting worse out there. Did we miss it? Did Jesus forget about us? And Paul says, no. You didn't. There's certain things that need to happen. And God won't forget where you are. Now, is that good news to know for those of us who go through persecution? That Jesus doesn't forget where we are. Some of us are going to have to be faithful to the death. That Satan's going to throw us into prison. And you be faithful to death, I'll give you the crown of life. But here for this church, you've kept my word. You've repented of your sins. I will keep you from that hour, that day when the wrath of God is poured out upon the earth. That's good news. Now, verse 11. Every single coming of Christ up to this point in the letters has been dangerous. There's been, it's been nervous. Behold, I'm coming soon. I'm going to take away your lampstand if you don't repent. Here, the coming soon is good news. I'm coming soon. Isn't that good news for people who are persecuted? But the next eschatological movement in God's plan is the return of Jesus Christ for his bride. I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. There it is again. You want to read it? Go back to Smyrna and say, be faithful unto death. You hold fast to the biblical truth of the revelation of Jesus Christ until the very end. Verse 12, let's look at some more promises. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. You ever look at some of the ancient ruins in the, in the Near East? What are oftentimes the only things that are left standing? Pillars. Philadelphia was a city that was destroyed by an earthquake in A.D. 17. This is about 70 plus, 80 plus years later when John is writing this. And he's writing to a city where people are nervous to live in the city. You can walk around our city of Charleston, you can see the bolts that go through the, uh, the buildings, can't you? From the earthquake that Charleston itself experienced. Well, this area of Philadelphia experienced volcanic um, interruptions, for lack of a better term, and earthquakes. And the earthquakes so affected the city that people spread from the city, that they were too afraid to go into the city for what might happen. People tried to bolster up the walls and make sure they were strong, but the vast majority of people who were in this city were farmers. They were displaced from their home. And as they're outside and they're in the countryside, they're looking at a city that is shaken. They're looking at a city whose foundations are compromised. And John borrows from that here, and he says, you hold fast what you have until I come. And I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. Hebrew says that we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Isn't that good news? So there's a picture of stability and security. Not only that, I will write on him the name of my God and the name 
of the city of my God. If, if you take some time, get, when you go home and you take your Sunday afternoon nap, after you wake up and you get that cup of coffee, this is what happens in my house, uh, read Psalm 87. Psalm 87 is where God records those people who are his, not just from among the Jews, but from all of the nations. Hebrews also says that we are the assembly of the firstborn enrolled in heaven. Paul says in Philippians that our citizenship is in heaven. That you've got the passport to be welcomed into the presence of God. That you have security and stability and he knows your name. Not only that, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from God out of heaven, and the final one, my own new name. This is probably from Revelation chapter 19, where Jesus has a name written on him that nobody knows but himself. Do you understand that one day, as much, you know, Jesus knows everything about me. He knows that our, the hairs on our head are numbered. He knows everything that we say. He knows everything that we think. He knows everything that we fear. He knows everything that we hope. He knows everything about where we go. He knows everything about what we do. And Paul in 1 Corinthians says there's coming a day when I will know fully as I am fully known. Do you know that there are truths about Jesus in his incarnation, his death, burial, and resurrection that have yet to be revealed until you see him eye to eye? that you will gain a level of knowledge and intimacy with Jesus Christ himself that is only limited right now. And that you will have security, stability, intimacy, and the right to be in the very presence of God. Isn't that amazing? That should blow your mind. Verse 13, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Can I sum up the promises for you? Let's sum up the promises that Jesus has given to the Philadelphian church. Number one, in Jesus, they have access to heaven. That I have set before you an open door, which means even though you may be thrown out of the synagogue, even though you may not have civil and social and economic benefits for laying hold of my name. There's nobody that can bar you. There's no created thing that can bar you from the presence of the courts of heaven. That when I open it to you, you come in. Number two, Jesus will vindicate your faith in him. I will make them know that I have loved you. That for all time, the testimony of those who are in heaven will be that Jesus loves me. Why are you there? Because Jesus loves me. He died for me. He saved me. I had nothing to hold on to. I had no ethnic background. I had no uh, obedience. I had no hope. I had no supernatural insight except what God has offered to open my heart and mind to receive and embrace the truth of what Jesus did for me so that when I stand in heaven, the only thing that I will be commended for is my faith in Jesus Christ and my trust in that he loved me. He saved me. Number three, 
Jesus has taken the wrath of God for your sin. You, as a Christian, will never experience the wrath of God because Jesus took it for you. I mentioned the book of First and Second Thessalonians. The, the reason this is a, bro- a problem in First and Second Thessalonians is that they are deceived into thinking that their sufferings and persecution and difficulties are really the wrath of God. Have you ever thought that? In your life, as you've journeyed in your spiritual life, you've thought, the hardship that I'm going through now is because God hates me. You and I know, Christians, you know how powerful that temptation is to believe, isn't it? To question God's very love for you. This is why theology and the truth of what Jesus has done is so important. You have got to get the fact that Jesus took the wrath of God for you so that as you go through suffering and difficulty, it'll shape you, it'll create your faith, it'll develop you into the person that God wants you to be, but never is it, never, can I hear you, can you hear me? Never is it God's hatred of you. It is always his tender, sanctifying, purifying declaration that you are my son and daughter. Number four, he's coming soon. That's all I got for that. That's self-explanatory, isn't it? Number five, you have a stability and permanence and security in heaven that no earthly event, relationship, situation can ever take away. Do you see why perseverance isn't merely the answer to persecution? That's a response, but you can't persevere unless you got the promises. Otherwise, your perseverance is just in the flesh and in your own difficulty strength. You need theology. You need truth. You need the promises of what Jesus has done to protect and secure and uh, establish his love for you. Finally, number six, you will have an intimacy of relationship as a citizen of heaven that no earthly persecution can take away. He loves you now. He's going to keep loving you. And when your heart stops beating or when they take your life, he will love you still. And that he welcomes you because he opens the way into the very presence of God for you and for me. Now, there's a lot there in that letter. You with me? I want to take those ideas and compress them into one very particular thing that comes from the life of the Apostle Paul. Turn back to your left to Philippians chapter 3. Paul can write volumes in a theological library in sentences. Look at Philippians chapter 3. This is our hope as we close. I'm going to ask the band and John and the the guys to come up. This is from Philippians chapter 3. Philippians, you know, is the letter that Paul writes from prison. He writes in a place where, and he constantly talks about joy. He rejoices about everything. He's He's so annoying in Philippians because he's rejoicing about everything. It doesn't matter what happens. Whether or not he's persecuted, whether or not he's imprisoned, he's going, rejoice always. Again, I say rejoice, right? And the reason Paul can do that, even in the midst of experiencing persecution for preaching the very gospel of Jesus Christ, is because of the promises that he has in Jesus. This is so important. Now watch the promises that he lays hold of in Philippians chapter 3. Look at verse 17. 
Brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eye. What do you mean imitating me? You mean hold fast to the truth of Jesus Christ even when it costs you your freedom, Paul? Yep, that's what I mean. Hold fast what you have until I come? That's exactly what I mean. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Let me tell you, you can't do this on your own. I know that you're applying this text and these truths to yourself personally. You can't apply these truths unless you're in the community. You can't apply these truths unless you have examples of individuals who love uh, the truth of Jesus Christ so that they order their lives appropriately and walk faithfully holding fast with patient endurance. You can't do that on your own. You need people and examples who are ahead of you to help you navigate those situations in life. Verse 18, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God, their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. You see where John told you to put your eyes? On the heavenly Jerusalem. On the stability and the security that you have in the presence of God because of what Jesus has done for you in heaven. With minds set on earthly things, verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and I long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. What are we called to do? Hold fast what you have until I come. What's the distinguishing mark of a church? The truth about Jesus Christ, the biblical revelation of who he is. And no matter what persecution comes, our hope in persevering is the very promises of Jesus Christ for us. Amen? Father in heaven, we need to be strengthened in these truths. We need to know that there is someone in control. There's someone who has more authority than persecution. We need to know that our citizenship is in heaven. We need to know in times when we may face one day soon persecution, both religious or economic or political or the variety of ways that we may experience difficulty for holding fast to your name. May we be found faithful. May we not move from the truth of who you are. Father, bolster us and strengthen us. Give us courage to be the men and the women that you desire for us to be. And we may, gain, may we gain great hope from the fact that you are coming soon. And that what awaits us is the crown of life. Thank you for who you are, for what you've done. For your grace to us. That we have put our hope and trust in someone who will never leave us and never forsake us. Who has become the wrath bearer and the sin bearer and has experienced abandonment that we may be brought in. He has become an outcast that we might be welcomed into the very courts of heaven. So may we be refreshed and reminded this morning of those truths. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.